Hello, this is the David Eagle Podcast. These are podcasts from 2016, a year that saw me release a podcast every single day in a project called David's Daily Digital Dollop. Rather than having 366 podcasts just for 2016 alone, I thought I would make these weekly omnibus editions. We're now up to week 16, we're in the middle of April, and I'm on tour with my folk band, The Young'uns, across the United Kingdom. Therefore, I have to record in all sorts of locations, so I'm not recording in a room, a quiet room. I'm often recording in noisy environments, so you can hear the sounds of fans and I say fans I mean air conditioning that kind of thing oh you cut sometimes it's difficult to hear what I'm saying above the sound of the groupies I keep telling them keep the noise down I'll be with you soon I've just got to read out a dollop but they're too, they're too excited they can't control themselves so I'm recording in a lot of undesirable locations that's not me having a dig at the venues some of the shitholes we have to play I mean I've got to record in cupboards toilets all sorts of things just to get these dollops recorded but hopefully any lack of audio quality will be made up for by the quality of content and you won't even notice the audio quality degradation. When you hear this noise, that means we're moving on to the next dollop. Enjoy. Okay, I'm uh, recording this dollop in the Edinburgh Pleasance Theatre cupboard. I say the Edinburgh Pleasance Theatre cupboard. It's like everyone's like, oh yeah, I know the one you mean, David. If we all refer to it as that, the Edinburgh, uh, it's a Edinburgh Pleasance Theatre cupboard uh, rather than the one. It may, it may be the definitive cupboard. It may have a, a special place in the hearts and minds of the people who run the Edinburgh Pleasance Theatre, but I, I very much doubt it. It's kind of a, it's got a door with um, sort of splinters in the wood and uh, it hasn't got a handle on the door, which means I can't close the door properly because if I do close the door properly, I won't be able to get back out. And also, it's quite precarious. I'm sitting on a very high and very wobbly stool in this cupboard as well. If you're thinking, oh, I'm a bit bored by this dollop, keep listening because there is a chance that I might fall off the stool halfway through. David's Daily Digital Dollop, Dollop 107. Ask not what your folk group can do. Oh, you got an A's, Mr. Yes? Sorry, um, oh. <laughs> 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 <Dark cupboard listeners. laughs> Imagine if someone from the venue just found you. <laughs> uh, the guy's asking, do you have any jacks for your keyboard? No, I hoped that... The ones for the guitar are different, are they? They'll work, the ones for the guitar. It's just normal jack leads, yeah. two mono jacks is all we need, but... Yeah. I'm closing the door again there. Oh, a lot of drama here. David's Daily Digital Dollop, Dollop 107. Ask not what your folk group can do for you. It's finally happened. Someone who saw us for the first time at our short free afternoon gig at the Robert Gillow pub in Lancaster has contacted us to say that they have set up a young'un's Wikipedia page. She enjoyed the gig so much that she immediately went on the internet to find our Wikipedia page, keen to learn more about us. But because none of our so-called fans have been committed enough to actually set one up for us, she was unable to read about us on Wikipedia. So she decided to set one up herself. When I got this message, I was a bit unsure of how accurate her article would be, given that she'd absolutely no idea about us, hence why she'd searched for us on Wikipedia. But she had clearly done her research. It's quite a short article with just the basic facts. But she has cited quite a few references, included some quotes, added various links to the things that she cited, and included a discography. Hopefully her efforts will be the catalyst for others to join in and add more. When I searched the young'un's article, one of the related searches that popped up on Wikipedia was David Eagle. Upon entering on this, it brought up a list of David Eagles. I was listed at the very top, described as David Eagle, English singer in the young'un's. What the hell's going on there? Some tribal drumming going on for your entertainment now. 
I didn't actually have a Wikipedia page, but for some reason I am still recognised by Wikipedia and am listed above the David Eagles who do have actual Wikipedia articles. So if you haven't bought a ticket for a gig on our tour and are feeling a little bit guilty, you can make amends by adding to the young'un's recently added Wikipedia article and or create one about me. The free Robert Gillow pub gig also yielded another interesting result. We were contacted by someone who writes and records grime music, a UK variant of hip-hop. He was really taken with the subjects covered in our songs, talking about social issues in our local area, telling real people's stories. These are the things that he is passionate about and portrays in his music. And that is true with the grime scene in general. He writes and raps about the same things as we do, only we have chosen a different genre of music to express these ideas in. He was so inspired by our performance in the pub that he immediately started writing a new song, inspired by our song You Won't Find Me on Benefit Street, about Stockton's defiant opposition to being negatively stigmatised by the Channel 4 reality TV show. He wants to use a sample of it in his song, and he sent us the lyrics that he wrote after our gig. It's a very different approach to the way that we structure a song. For a start, there's a lot more swearing in it, but the lyrics are really good. It'll be interesting to see what comes of this, and hopefully he'll get it recorded, and we can play it and chat to him on the Young'uns podcast. We've only done one community event on this tour so far, but it's already brought us into contact with people who wouldn't ordinarily access our music, and who we wouldn't ordinarily meet in an art centre or a folk club. Perhaps our grime friend will find these dollops and become inspired to create a grime concept album around the subject matter covered in these blogs. I think that he could do a really good hip-hop, profanity-laden take on my malfunctioning kettle. I'm sure the kids would love that. Okay, we're back in a toilet, ladies and gentlemen, in the artist area. There's also a bath in here. It's really upmarket in this uh, place in Sheffield at the Greystones. The audio part of this challenge has failed thanks to the Edinburgh Pleasance Theatre's woeful internet speed. I left my laptop running for the entirety of yesterday's gig, but when I came back to it after the gig, the audio still hadn't uploaded. I did manage to get the written version published though, so I've still managed to publish a blog every day of this year. Technology also failed me during the gig. As we came on the stage for the second half, I placed my digital recorder down on the stage in front of me, but it toppled over and the memory card came out. While Sean was introducing the next song, I tried to restart the recorder, but the recorder had completely stopped working. I tried the on-off switch repeatedly, but nothing happened. Taking the batteries out didn't help either. Neither did taking out the memory card. Oh, it's joke heavy today, isn't it? <laughs> joke heavy. I thought about trying to recall on my mobile phone, but I'd already spent five minutes of the gig faffing around with the digital recorder to no avail. I didn't really want to faff around anymore and impair the gig, which was going exceptionally well. The gig was certainly the best of the tour so far, and there would have been quite a lot of material for the podcast. I did explain to the audience that the recorder had stopped working, and I joked that I hoped the gig would be rubbish and boring, as it would be a waste if only the 130 people in this room just got to hear it. While this was a joke, there was a small part of me who actually meant it. Every time something funny or interesting happened in the gig, I was filled with a mixture of gladness that the gig was going so well, but annoyance that the gig was going so well, and then it wouldn't be going on the podcast. 
I hoped that someone in the audience would have recorded it, but no one came up to me after the gig to say that they had. Again, it's all take, take, take with the young'uns fans, isn't it? So, unfortunately, you will never get to hear what happened when Michael took off his clothes, or when a lion suddenly bounded onto the stage and Sean heroically wrestled it to the ground, and we pacified it with a ballad. But never mind, we move on. Towards the end of the gig, Irish brought the three of us a beer onto the stage. Apparently, this angered the bar staff, because we were drinking beer that wasn't sold at the bar, but was the complimentary beer provided by the people who organised the gig. The organiser of the gig came to us after our performance and apologetically asked us if we would leave our beers in the dressing room and not take it into the theatre when we go out to meet people, because the bar staff had been giving him quite a bit of grief. Apparently, one of the people running the bar was so annoyed that he was even considering coming onto the stage and taking the beers from us, but someone talked him out of it. If he had come onto the stage, then I would have been pretty annoyed. Not because of the barman's attitude, but because it would have been absolutely hilarious, and I'd be massively pissed off if it happened and we didn't get a recording of it for the podcast. It seemed a bit odd, though, to be so churlish about three people on stage drinking beer that wasn't bought from the bar, considering that we brought 130 people to their venue who were then buying drinks from them. Jenny, the girl with the health problems from uh, my positive experiment dollop, if you remember that, came to the gig. She did not, however, shout out any dollop-related heckles or attempt to start any dollop-based chants. But perhaps she was intending to, but then realised that if she had done that, then I would be annoyed that the incident hadn't been recorded for the podcast. I am going to give her the benefit of the doubt on this occasion. We're doing two gigs in Sheffield today because the first one sold out so quickly. So we're doing two full 90-minute performances in the same venue, one in the afternoon and then another one in the evening. We drove to Hartlepool after the gig last night. It was the halfway point between Edinburgh and Sheffield, and we didn't fancy a six-hour drive late at night straight after our gig. We didn't get to sleep until about 3am, and we were up at about 8.30, so it's going to be a, a long day until next time we meet, probably in a toilet. Sorry to disappoint you, I'm not in a toilet, I'm in a dressing room. David's Daily Digital. I'm not going to bother listening then, turn off. I'll find another podcast that's set in a toilet. Not wasting my time with this. David's Daily Digital Dollop, Dollop 109, tying the knot with spaghetti. As well as stories from on tour, hilarious anecdotes about domestic appliances, David's Daily Digital Dollop is also your portal for news relating to the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, a new brand of religion that is growing in popularity. We've covered this church previously on David's Daily Digital Dollop, you may remember at the start. This week saw the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster conduct its first legally recognised wedding in the UK. The fact that the news articles state first legally recognised wedding ceremony suggests that the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster have previously been carrying out non-legally recognised wedding ceremonies. And I wonder whether, now that they are legally approved to do weddings, they have abandoned the non-legally recognised option. I hope not, though. I think it would be quite fun to have a Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster wedding. The first one was on board a pirate ship, which is much more fun than a church or a registry office. But I don't want to actually have the worry of knowing that I'm actually wed to anybody. Also, I could maybe dupe some 
some hapless girl into thinking that it's a non-legally recognised wedding ceremony that we're having when in fact it's actually a real legally valid marriage. I'd convinced her that we should just have a fake wedding, you know, just for a bit of fun, and she'd agree to it in the spirit of joie de vivre, not any the wiser to the true fact. I might try this on the next girl that I fancy. If you blog people, you podcast listeners, would keep this to yourselves, that would be helpful. I don't want word getting out about my master plan. In return for your silence on this matter, I will reward you by podcasting the entire wedding ceremony. Not the wedding night, though. Sorry, Chloe. I'd also appreciate it if you didn't let on to Sean about the news that the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster has started doing legally recognised weddings. He has already booked his wedding, and he'd be massively disappointed to note that if he just held out a little bit longer, he could be having a Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster wedding ceremony on board a pirate ship. I dare not tell him, lest he should cancel his already booked wedding ceremony. I mean, I really don't want to have to go to another wedding fair again and try and pretend that I know about flowers and table decorations. I think I failed in that last time. I don't have to go through that rigmarole all over again. Although, having said that, I imagine that a Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster wedding fair would be a lot more exciting than a boring normal one. Presumably, us lads would go out the night before the wedding on uh, Sean's spag party. <laughs> We walked onto the stage at Theatre 7 in Shrewsbury, and as the applause died down, I could hear what sounded like a jet engine from behind us. I was momentarily thrown into panic. Had the last three weeks been a dream? Was I about to wake up and find myself back on that bloody plane heading back from Australia and realise that I'd dreamt the last three weeks and still had another 20 hours of flying to go? Would I wake up and realise that I'm still only at dollop 90? As we reached the front of the stage, the next thing that I noticed was that there was plumes of smoke heading towards me. I could also see a big white light spreading out ahead of me. Had something gone wrong with the plane and I was now being ushered from this earthly realm to the afterlife? But I couldn't die yet. I still had so much to achieve. I hadn't yet completed my 366 consecutive daily blogging challenge, nor had I yet taken the comedy world by storm with my award-winning sell-out run of stand-up shows all about my kettle, which would then be turned into an Oscar-winning film. There were so many things still left to achieve, I couldn't die yet. But fortunately, the only thing that was dying was the sound of the applause from the Shrewsbury crowd. The blinding light and shrouding smoke remained, and the roar of the jet engine continued from behind me, and Sean began to speak. The gig was underway, and I hadn't woken up yet to find myself on a gruellingly long plane journey, or found myself dead and heading for the afterlife. The first comment that Sean made was to observe our strange environment, and the fact that there was a jet engine-like roar from behind us, a blinding light in our eyes, and a smoke machine pelting out smoke. It was a bit weird having a smoke machine as part of the gig. We were trying to sing, but we kept swallowing the smoke, and our throats were getting drier as the gig progressed. At the interval, we asked the tech people if they could do something about the blinding lights, the smoke, and the jet engine roar. Apparently, the jet engine noise was being caused by the generators used to power the blinding lights. They informed us that they, they could turn it off, but this would mean having to lose the big lights. They didn't seem too keen on this idea, but it seemed like a no-brainer for us. After all, we'd lose the blinding lights and the jet engine to boot. They would still have plenty of lighting options, just not one that resulted in blinding the performers. We also mentioned the smoke machine, but the technicians seemed even more reluctant to turn this off than they had been with the jet engine inducing blinding lights. Apparently, it added atmosphere, which might be jeopardised if there was no smoke. 
They didn't seem convinced by our argument that we'd been gigging for ten years, and we'd seemed to have managed pretty fine without smoke in all that time. But perhaps they had a point. Maybe we would have won the Fork Award a lot earlier if we'd have only had the foresight and the vision to incorporate smoke into our gigs, possibly blinding lights as well. But I got the feeling that the technicians had just been bought some new techie toys to play with by the venue and we were spoiling their fun by asking them for a more minimal approach. And so we let them have their smoke machine. Upon walking out onto the stage for the second half, the jet engine had gone and so had the blinding lights. And I think that the three of us and the audience all felt much more relaxed and it was a really enjoyable second half. Although, in fairness, maybe none of it had anything to do with us at all. Maybe the amazing atmosphere was down to the techies and their smoke-based antics. I think the techies really enjoyed our performance, though. They didn't tell us that in person, in words. But as we turned to leave the stage, they were blowing smoke up our asses. At the gig, I spoke to lots of people who listen and read these dollops. No shout-outs, no heckles, pissing dog lady, or I wouldn't imagine it would taste very nice and any of the other catchphrases there, unfortunately. Either my dollop listeners are just too refined and polite to shout out, or they want to keep me for themselves as their little secret, perhaps worrying that if I get too popular, I might sell out and start doing more mainstream jokes, ditching the groundbreaking stuff about kettles in favour for more profitable subject matter. We're back in a toilet, my friends. <laughs> David's Daily Digital Dollop, Dollop 111. When he was down, he was down. The story of a harassed and misunderstood elevator music composer. The lift in our hotel in Cardiff has music playing in it. It's not the radio or actual commercial music, but the kind of stuff that's referred to as elevator music. I've not heard this kind of music in a lift for a long time. When I was a child, I remember music in lifts all the time, but nowadays, it is rare that lifts have music. It seems a bit pointless, really. In most cases, you're just in the lift for about 30 seconds, no more. And a good amount of that time is punctuated by a voice announcing doors opening, doors closing, lift going up, first floor, second floor, etc. So the music is probably only going to be audible for about 10 seconds of your lift experience. The music wasn't particularly loud, it was only audible if there was no conversation going on. So really, it does seem like a completely pointless feature. I wonder though, who makes elevator music and who created this particular piece that was playing in this lift? barely audibly. Are they proud of their work? Maybe they deliberately bring their family to holiday at this specific hotel in order to impress them. Maybe he or she doesn't tell their family members beforehand, wanting it to be a nice surprise for them, relishing the look on their faces when their children realise that their parent is responsible for the music that is played on loop in a lift. The family check into their hotel, and the dad, the lift music composer, is trembling slightly with the excitement. They will be so proud of him when they realise that he is the man behind the lift ambience music. Okay everyone, to the lift, he says, trying to sound nonchalant, not wanting to betray his excitement. He marched towards the lift, but then deliberately slows down his pace, realising that he's in danger of losing the nonchalance. He turns his brisk walk into a casual stroll. Excuse me, sir, calls the receptionist. Your room is on this floor. There's no need to get the lift. Damn, why hadn't he checked which floor the room was on when he booked the hotel? 
Now he would have no reason to take the lift, as looking around he could see that all the hotel's facilities, the pool, the gym, the restaurant and their room, were all located on the ground floor. Well, that was it. The game was up. This entire holiday was a pointless waste. They travelled all the way from Edinburgh to come here. His wife had been furious with him. Why had he booked a hotel in Cardiff when there were so many options closer to home that would be much less stressful to get to and wouldn't involve hours in the car with mourning restless children? But he had tried to placate her by showing her all the things that they could do once they got to their destination. Obviously, it hadn't been about that for him. All he'd wanted was for his wife and children to understand what he'd been up to for the last two years of his life. His wife knew that he was a composer, but she hadn't seen much money coming in, and she'd never been invited to see any of the works that he'd composed being performed in any theatres or music halls. That was because he didn't compose for theatres or music halls. That wasn't his thing. He was an elevator music composer, and proud of it. He'd dreamed of being a lift music composer since he was a small boy. He remembered his career advisors and his teachers at school laughing at him when he told them. You might have to rethink your dreams a bit, they told him. I mean, I really don't think you can make a living simply from composing music for lifts. You'd probably have to branch out into ambient music for shopping centres, airport lounges, hospital waiting rooms, and all that kind of thing too. But he was adamant. He didn't want his music to be played in hospital waiting rooms, or airport lounges, or shopping centres. The music that he could hear buzzing around his febrile brain all day, every day, was clearly music designed ultimately and exclusively for lifts. And one day, he proved them all wrong. Then, ten years ago, he met the love of his life. They started dating, and he fell head over heels in love with her. He'd never felt this way about anyone before. The only thing he'd ever cared about was his lift music. Then, one day, six months into their courtship, he finally revealed to her his dream, that one day his music would be featured in a lift. And she laughed. She laughed. He had been crushed by her laugh, and he vowed to himself that one day he would prove her wrong, and that he would hear his music played in a lift. She would be so overcome with emotion and love for him all the more because of his success. He hadn't quite imagined it would take another ten years for his dream to come true. He kept sending out demos to hotels, but he never heard anything back. He didn't know how to go about it, really. I mean, how do you advertise yourself as a lift music composer? How did people get their music in lifts? He knew that it was possible, for he'd heard music in lifts before. It always filled him with anger and loathing whenever he was in a lift, and he heard the lift music. Well, lift music, if you could call it lift music. It wasn't fit to be in a lift. It was never right. It always lacked the spirit and the commitment that his music had. He could tell that it had merely been churned out half-heartedly by someone who was obviously not remotely interested in how it sounded. How could someone be awarded such a coveted and esteemed role to compose music that would be played in a lift and then waste the opportunity by producing this kind of nondescript, redundant bilge? It made him sick. It made him angry. But it also made him even more determined. One day, he kept telling himself, one day, 
I thought we'd go to the top floor and appreciate the view, he said to the receptionist and to his family, who were wondering why Dad was marching towards the lift when their room was clearly on the floor that they were standing on. It's been a long journey, said his wife exasperatedly. Let's just go to our rooms and freshen up before heading out to the restaurant over there for something to eat. There isn't really a view to admire from in here, sir, explained the receptionist. There are no windows in the corridors. You'd get to see a really nice view if you went outside the hotel and walked up the steps. Steps! Bloody steps! Damn them all! He was starting to get fidgety. He didn't give two hoots for the sodding view. He wanted to take the lift and show his wife and his children what he'd been painstakingly working on for the last two years of his life. He wanted to vindicate himself to them and demonstrate why he'd been detached from them for the last two years. He'd essentially kept himself cooped up in his studio, experimenting with musical ideas and perfecting his composition. He'd not made much money from that venture, but it wasn't the money that was important to him. But of course, his wife and his children could never understand that. But if they only heard his music in that lift, then they would see. Surely they would see. Is there not another restaurant to eat at? Uh, maybe on another floor? He asked, praying that there would be. Uh, no, sir. All the facilities are on your floor, sir, so it'll be really convenient for you, and you won't have to get the lift at all, sir. Her words pierced him, and he had to fight to stop himself flying into a rage. Perfect, said his wife, and started heading in the direction of their room, and the kids followed. But he just stood there. He couldn't believe it. They'd travelled all this way, and for nothing. His wife turned back to him and irritatedly inquired as to why he wasn't following. He told her that he'd be with them soon. His wife, reaching the end of her tether, having seen the man that she once loved become more and more detached from her and the children, turned away and walked off with the kids to the room and disappeared inside. He turned to the receptionist. Would you do me a big favour, please? He said to her. What's that, sir? I need you to change our room to one on the top floor. The receptionist was completely nonplussed. Could you pretend that there's something wrong with our room booking, and that there's been a mistake, and, and say that we have to move to a room on the top floor? The conversation went on for nearly half an hour. The receptionist explained that all the rooms were fully booked out on the top floor, and on all the other floors for that matter. And as there was actually nothing wrong with their room, there was really no grounds for moving them. Eventually, after much remonstrating, he resorted to bribing the receptionist to do his bidding, giving her all of his money that he'd earned from the lift composition work. All that money for two years' work had just been spent bribing a receptionist. But the money wasn't what was important here. He needed to get his wife and children to the lift so that they could hear his music and finally understand. And this was the only way of achieving that objective. The receptionist agreed to call the customers staying in one of the rooms on the top floor and tell them that there'd been a mistake in the booking and that they were actually meant to be staying in the room on the bottom floor. And then his wife and his children and him could move to the other room on the top floor. He thanked her profusely. He was so excited he nearly kissed her. He hurried to his family's room on the bottom floor and broke the news to them, trying to keep his excitement hidden. His wife was not particularly pleased, as she literally had just gotten dressed to get in the shower. But she put her clothes back on, and she and the kids followed her husband out of the room and towards the lift. Finally. The lift seemed to take an age to arrive. The kids were growing restless, and one of them started making for the stairs and shouted to his brother, I'll race you to the top! His dad's heart sank. 
his children disappeared from view and began to run up the stairs. Damn, he'd wanted his children to share in this special moment and to understand why their dad had been so distant and cold for the last two years. But at least he still had his wife with him. The moment wasn't entirely ruined. Actually, I think I could do with the exercise too. Plus, it'll beat standing here like a lemon waiting for the slowest lift in the world to grace us with its presence. His wife said. She began to make for the stairs. He grabbed her to stop her. No, he shouted. His wife was stunned. It had come out more aggressively than he wanted it to. Darling, he added, a bit softer, hoping that it would help placate her. The lift will be here soon. His wife protested against him grabbing her arm and aggressively shouting. Their children would be at the top floor now, waiting for them. She began to head for the stairs again, but at that moment, the lift arrived. The lift is here, he cried. Look, darling, the lift. She was still heading for the stairs. He ran towards her and almost rugby tackled her, then grabbed her arm again and dragged her as nonchalantly as he could into the lift. She was, <laughs> she was both flummoxed and fuming at this, <laughs> and spent the first two floors berating him for his strange and aggressive behaviour. He wasn't listening to her. <laughs> but underneath her words, he could hear the faint sounds of music. Music which he knew only too well, for it was his music, his composition, his pride and joy. This was the moment that he'd been waiting for all his life. The moment that he'd been desperate to share with his wife. <laughs> and she was shouting over it, completely oblivious. When he dreamt about this moment, it had always been a romantic, beautiful and poignant moment. As his music played in the lift, he would softly and tenderly tell her and his children why he'd been so cold and detached all these years. He'd explain that he'd been so busy in the studio all day, creating the very music that was now emanating from this lift. Music that he had fixated on and poured over in immense detail, considering every nuance, every chord, every intricate melodic motif, to create the best possible lit music experience that he could. He would watch as his wife and children's faces glowed with emotion, tears welling up in all of their eyes, as they finally realised what kind of a man he was. And finally, they would understand him, and he'd feel at peace, at last. But it was all going horribly wrong. They were now at the third floor of ten, and his wife's barrage of words hadn't yet abated. He made to press his hands to her lips to stop her noise, desperate to make her hear. This was driving him insane. But then the doors opened, and two people got in. Excellent, he thought. He knew that his wife would be far too embarrassed to shout at him now that there was other people in the lift. He'd not counted on there being other people in the lift. It wasn't ideal. It would be a hugely emotional and poignant moment for him, and he didn't really want other people present. But then, on the plus side, they were keeping his wife from shouting at him. So in a way, he was glad for their intrusion. Doors closing, said the lift. Damn, he hadn't accounted for the fact that his beautiful music would be ruined by the sounds of automated voices. It did nothing to add to the beauty of its creation. He made a mental note to ask the hotel if they could remove 
the automated voices from the lift, because it was getting in the way of the lift music listening experience. He'd mention it to the receptionist later that, lift going up, bloody hell, there it was again, and there was a really good bit of the piece as well, a crucial part of the composition that tied the whole thing together, and it had been completely desecrated by that stupid voice. He'd definitely say something when he, lovely day, came a big, brash, confident-sounding American voice. It was the man who had just entered the lift on the second floor. Yes, very nice, replied his wife. He couldn't believe it. His music was playing in their midst, and they were seemingly not being affected by it in the slightest. It was those bloody announcements. They had completely obscured his masterpiece. And, so how long are you staying for? Asked the man's partner. There must be a volume control on this lift somewhere. He tried to discreetly get the music to go louder. It was far too quiet. He could barely hear it above the announcements and the sound of the lift's motor. And then when people started talking. My goodness, so I've written over 2,500 words there. I was really enjoying myself, but we have unfortunately arrived at our gig now uh, in London. Unfortunately, that's the end of it. I was really getting into it as well. As regular dollop listeners will know, during this tour I have frequently been recording from the toilet, including this dollop, ladies and gentlemen. This is not because I've got a weird fetish that involves people listening to me in toilets, or at least that's not the only reason anyway. It's often difficult to find a place where I can record it away from other people. Yesterday's dollop was an extra special treat for listeners, as I recorded from two different toilets at the Bush Hall in London. The first bit was recorded in the main public disabled toilet. Don't worry, the venue was closed to the public at the time, and so my dollop recording wasn't responsible for any bladder or bowel accidents, although I'm sure that they would completely understand, and in a way be happy that they had played a small part in the blog recording process, thanks to their noble sacrifice. Halfway through the recording, the venue doors opened and people started filing in. So I relocated to the artist dressing room toilet. The public disabled toilet had a chair in it, but our artist toilet did not have a chair. There was also no lid on the toilet. I would either have to get a chair or sit on the actual toilet seat. It was quite a walk from the public toilet to the artist one, and I didn't really have time to take the chair out of the toilet in the public area and then transfer it to the artist one, or spend time locating a chair. I would just have to sit on the toilet seat. I didn't fancy the idea of sitting on the toilet seat with my trousers on, as the trousers might sag a little bit when I sat down and they might come into contact with something. So I therefore decided to sit on the toilet as I would if I was using it for its more conventional purpose, producing dollops of a different kind. So I sat on the toilet with my trousers around my ankles and pulled my laptop onto my bare lap and began to read and record. During the recording, I got a bit hysterical and was struggling to stop myself from laughing as I was suddenly hit by the sheer absurdity of what I was doing, sitting on a toilet reading a fictitious tale about a crazed, obsessive elevator music composer. The other reason I was laughing was because I realised that I was really desperate for the toilet, but I didn't feel as if I could go, even though I was sitting on the toilet. And all I'd essentially have to do is just let go and wee. I was therefore a bit distracted when I was reading, as I was considering whether I could maybe get away with having a wee while reading the dollop. Would anyone notice? If I timed it to coincide with one of the bits of the dialogue where the lift music composer raises his voice, 
Then maybe my voice would obscure the sound of the weeing. I also thought that maybe I could control the flow of the wee so that I could urinate in bursts to coincide with the louder bits of the dialogue. Whenever I raised my voice, I could let out a bit of wee and then curtail the flow when I reached a quieter passage. I would be on stage in ten minutes and really didn't have time to stop the recording to go to the toilet and I might not even have time after the recording. Also, my start and stop idea would have had the extra bonus of exercising my pubococcoligeous muscle, which apparently helps you control and prolong the ejaculation process. So I'd be saving time. I had to look that up, by the way. I didn't just know that. So I'd be saving time and working on my sexual ability as well. The only problem was that I didn't know if the microphone would be able to still pick up the sound of me weeing. I didn't know how metallic the ball was and what noise the wee would make as it hit the ball. If I aimed for the sides of the ball rather than the middle, it should have less of a direct impact and create less sound, obviously. The other problem was it was becoming physically impossible to urinate as I was finding the thought of this clandestine weeing ruse and the idea of you all unknowingly listening to it rather arousing. And I had biologically responded accordingly. Was that last bit a joke or am I being honest? Did I decide to risk having a wee during the dollop recording or not? You're welcome to listen and see if you can hear anything and then listen again and again and again, you weirdos. Did I exercise my pubocologogeus muscle or not. I will not divulge. But let's just say that the next girl who ends up in bed with me is in for a treat as I provide her with at least two minutes of pleasure. Although 30 seconds of that two minutes might be a few warm-up gags, by which I mean jokes rather than bondage, although you never know. Yesterday's community event was a gig in London's Healthy Living Club for people with dementia. These afternoon gigs that we're doing are free, although I did get lots of kisses from old ladies, which, to be honest, is worth much more to me than any money. They were only kisses on the cheek, but I'm in no position to be choosy here, and I'll take whatever I can get. Plus, these ladies are from a different generation, where full-on passionate snogs are frowned upon on the first date. I am booked in to do a few solo gigs there later in the year, so I'll keep ploughing away, and I shall keep practising my pubocologogeous muscle exercises just in case. So, all in all, yesterday was highly arousing. Sorry, I know that this dollop has maybe been a little bit disturbing for you listening to. However, it's the Queen's birthday, so I thought that it would be fitting to spend the majority of today's dollop talking about sitting on the throne. Happy birthday, ma'am, as in jam, if you're reading this. Or maybe you prefer to listen to the audio version, hoping to hear the sounds of me having a wee. I'll tell you what, I'm in the toilet. Should I do it? Shall I have a wee for the Queen? Hang on. Let's do it. If you don't want to hear it, turn off. Right, actually, and you can't say, oh, this is disgraceful, David, you can't do this. Because if you, if you don't want to hear it, all you need to do is turn off the audio now. So if you don't want to hear it, this is your problem. Okay. Don't blame me. You're the one who's still listening to this. You can't, you can't say that I'm sick. If you're still listening to this, stop listening now. I, w- I promise you, I will not wee in any other dollops. So this is the only one that I'm going to urinate on. So do you want to hear it or not? If you keep listening, you want to hear it. And you are a part of this. So don't have a go at me. Okay. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to undo do my belt and things. So, you know, you can tell I'm serious. And you can make the decision at any time. 
But if you keep listening, eventually it'll be too late and you'll never be able to go back. That was it. That didn't know nothing. I mean, I can't actually do anymore. I've been sitting here for five minutes trying to wee. And I can't because I don't even need to go. So that was pointless. <laughs> that was pointless because of course it would have had it would have had a point otherwise, wouldn't it? I can't believe you just listened to that. I know it's probably just you, Chloe. Anyway. I said I was never going to wee on another dollop. It was a shame, really, to have wasted the one time I was going to have a wee on that mere trickle. <laughs>